0: Hi, Hi, Nancy. Welcome to episode 51 of The Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on The Front Porch. Linny, this month, we read Sparks Like Stars by Nadia Hashimi. Oh, well, now this was a good
1: novel. You recommended this one, Nance. Yeah. And as in typical fashion, I ordered it on my Kindle. <laughs>
0: oh, oh, Yes, we have not had a Kindle mention for several episodes. Kindle is here's, back. <laughs> here's the thing. I thought this was a
1: true story because I'm not like looking in the fiction or the nonfiction autobiography, yeah. whatever. So I thought this was an autobiography until I was done And then I looked at the author, because I didn't even want to know what she looked like. So this is a historical piece. There really was this takeover. Right. It opens up in Kabul. It's 1978. The heroine of the story is Satara Zamini, and she's living a privileged life. Her family is pretty well off. She's spending a lot of time at the palace, apparently, with movers and shakers, and her dad is one of them. She doesn't realize that life is going to change in one day. And that's where the
0: book takes off. Quite a dramatic start to the book. You mentioned that you thought that it was a nonfiction book. What about the book made you think that it was nonfiction? Was it because she writes so evocatively? Was it because the characters seemed so much like real people? What was it about the book that as you're reading along, you're like, well, this is a true story? Well, I I didn't know my history. (laughs) (laughs) But I did
1: know that it was a doctor. And the lady who was in the book, she's a doctor. So I thought, this is her life. Sure, sure. And I believe it's written in the first person. True. Because I'm not a literary person, I figured, okay, this is her talking.
0: (laughs) I didn't realize, (laughs) oh, that's a style that could be used. That's a point of view that can be used.
1: Yeah. Those three things were the things that I thought, oh, this is a true story. I totally bought into it. But she writes it in a way that is so
0: believable. Yeah, Now, she knew this book was a fictional book. I did. She weaves in true life things like really good historical fiction. She is basing this on some things that actually happened, like the SAR revolution. The Afghan president, that was President Sardar Mohammed Daoud. And he is a character, in quotes. He is a character in the book. His family are all characters in the book. So th- that kind of reality makes you think that maybe. It is nonfiction. So I looked this up. In April 28th, 1978, 45 years ago, he was murdered in a coup led by pro-communist rebels. And that started the beginning of political upheaval that resulted in Soviet occupation two years later. And then, of course, since then, the country has basically been in a state of armed conflict. Most recently, what Americans will remember is NATO forces withdrew in 2021, and now the Taliban is in control. And it's estimated really since 1978 that one to two million Afghans have been killed over these years of political instability, something that a lot of women are aware of. Now, under Taliban control, women are excluded from political life. They face restrictions in access to education, humanitarian assistance, employment of practically any kind, justice and health services. And according to a recent U.N. report, women and girls are basically restricted to their homes Human Rights Watch says, quote, there is no country in the world where the basic human rights of women and girls are more restricted than in Afghanistan, end quote. So with really good historical fiction, you do learn about what the times really were, but then you get these great characters that help you live what's going on. One of the things, especially knowing where Afghanistan is now in terms of it's pretty much catapulted back to a third world country, was this book opens in 1978, and Afghanistan is a completely different country than the one we know now. It was relatively peaceful during most of the 20th century before 1978. It was westernizing. In an interview that the author did, she said that the 60s and 70s were a peaceful window of Afghan history. In the book, they were cosmopolitan, so different from what we think of Afghanistan now. So I really appreciated how she took these historical facts and then made us see where the country was through the eyes of this 10-year-old. And then as Sitara grows up, we see what has happened to her country totally different picture.
1: Yes, I did not know until reading this book that Afghanistan was so westernized at that point in their history and how they have just gone back decades to the place where they are today. Mm -hmm. I want to hear your thoughts on how that trip back actually helped her heal, even though it was just so sad to see this beloved country that her parents loved, she loved, had wonderful memories. And in no way, did you think that she was treated less than because she was a female, or her mother treated poorly. Right. Although the book opens up in Afghanistan, she quickly finds herself in America. And (laughs) now, because of her class in her old country, she did know at least some English, thank goodness, when she got here. Yeah. But because of a number of reasons, she keeps her identity a secret. And as she grows up, she is seeing Afghanistan change. She experiences racism yeah. As she heals from the trauma of her past, she is also seeing her country deteriorate.
0: Yeah. This is not just an Afghanistan thing. You think of what's happening in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I have friends from a South American country. They just shake their heads and say, so sad, what's happening to our country? We. I think take our country and our government for granted in a lot of ways and we just think well we're the United States we're we're always going to be a democratic country or whatever but these stories show the pain of your country just disintegrating everything you knew and loved suddenly it's gone and it is more common than we in America even realize, because we live in this bubble of, well, America is America, and we're always going to be America. But this story really struck me for that reason, the pain of being an immigrant.
1: You see neighborhoods in America that weren't the way they were. And that is such on a very minimal scale to what this is. Mm -hmm. But there are people that go back and say, wow, this is my house is gone, or now yeah. it's a parking lot. Or, well, this used to be a middle class neighborhood, and now it's all boarded up. Yeah. And the sadness they feel. But this is on a much bigger scale, obviously. We've got little Sitara here. She is 10. She suffers a lot. Yeah. She sees her family murdered. She is then stored in the basement <laughs> of the palace for a night or two. And then the guard who she thinks killed her family kidnaps her, Yeah, stuffs her in a car, and takes her to his home. She tries to flee. He keeps her there. She is not
0: well taken care of. They don't want her there. Yeah, because if she is found, they will suffer. Well, yeah, he's going to be killed for sure. Yeah, for harboring this family member of the regime that was just overthrown. Right. <laughs> He does
1: get her safely to
0: a lady that works at the
1: embassy. Yeah, the American embassy. But at that point, she's mute and she can't talk because of the trauma. And she doesn't trust anyone, which you can understand.
0: Mm -hmm. She
1: still thinks she's going to flee. And you see this with kids in foster care and a lot of other things that the trauma has just taken over. And now they can't trust anybody. But the whole government has switched in a day or two. And so she says, well, I'm going to go see my uncle. No, because he already signed up to serve with Russia. But she doesn't even know if they're telling her the truths. Right. She is in a trauma place for a while. This lovely mother and daughter duo that are Americans, she eventually does open up with, she does trust on some level, and she does at least understand some of their words. So, this is helpful. And they get her safely through a horrible bus accident and the takeover of an embassy in a different town. And then there's a fire. And then she figures out how to get everybody out of the burning building. Another trauma. And then the lady that she's traveling with dies. Yeah. Her only hope. She's stuck in a foster care system, there's abuse there. And she's thinking, because she's a child, oh, maybe this is how America is. Maybe this is the culture. Maybe I need to learn the new rules. She finally gets rescued from that foster home, back to the lady that was a part of the the embassy, and she raises her. And she's left with the trauma that she has gone through. And I like how then we learn about her And we learned some of her struggles as she's growing up, but we really spent a lot of time then in her relationship that she has, because obviously this is coming out in her relationship. And then a good bit at the end is about her returning to Afghanistan. During her revisit to Afghanistan and seeing how the country is now, This was a huge part of her healing journey to return
0: to Afghanistan a couple of decades later. Did you see it that way, Nance? Yeah, I definitely thought it was part of the healing process for her. And it made me think we moved around a bit when we were growing up. I thought about that experience you have going back to some place that was once really familiar to you, and you almost have this feeling like, oh, I didn't dream that, or, oh, I had forgotten all of about that. There's something about that circle of going back to your childhood places that can be Very much kind of the closing of a circle. And I'm not even talking about traumatic events. I'm just talking about, oh, well, we lived in this little town for a while. And, oh, yeah, there's that house we lived in. And I would never have remembered this thing. But now that I see it, I totally remember it. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think that that was important to her, that this was not a dream, because she had suppressed it for so many years. I mean, she had even suppressed her own name. So no, it wasn't a dream. No, she didn't somehow imagine it all. Here it all is. It looks very different. But yes, this is still the place where she spent her childhood. And of course, there are things like the palace that are still there, the place that she and her friends ran around in and had so many great memories. The big thing I thought was that she discovered where her family had been hastily buried. And I think for her, just knowing their final resting place, yes, they Exist, you know, like their bones exist. They're not completely forgotten. They are still physically represented. I think that that was extremely healing for her.
1: Yeah, the burial site was definitely the biggest part there. And I think realizing that she could really never return to that place of glory. Yes. Oh, look, I could have lived all my life here in this palace. I could have married this boy. This could have always been my front yard. Yeah. It's like you can't go back. It's a totally
0: different country. It, it is completely changed. Oh, I was just abject poverty. Women have to wear chadors. Oh, I was thinking of the,
1: the lady breathing cocaine on her child mm-hmm. to give her child
0: peace. When she left, her most recent memories were of this glorious palace and her friends, and it does help shut that door. It's like, yeah, and that's gone. So the mind doesn't need to be continually reflecting back on, this is a beautiful place. It's like, well, it was a beautiful place.
1: Yeah, she toys around a little bit with the one boy, like the what mm-hmm. So we would have, but no, it would have been different. You wouldn't probably even have been growing up here anyway. Mm-hmm. It's just a different situation. Right. There's a love interest here too. Yeah.
0: Which is pretty great.
1: <laughs> I was hoping that this young reporter and her would get together Mm -hmm.
0: And again, I thought it was a true story. (laughs) (laughs) So there was the boyfriend that she had, Adam. I liked him. I thought he seemed like a great guy at first. But eventually, we realized that he's in some ways kind of using their relationship to further his political ambitions because he's now decided to run for city council in New York City. And suddenly, he wants to be posting pictures on social media of him and Sitara, and he's talking about, oh, my girlfriend is a doctor and she saves all these lives, and I want to be a part of that. Sitara's like, well, first of all, you have provided information that I should not have told you, but it's a HIPAA violation, so you need to take that down. And secondly, not surprisingly, Sitara has always been an extremely private Person. And now suddenly there's her face showing up on social media and things about her life being shared. And then he proposes. She doesn't really know what to think about that. And then she realizes the timeline of the proposal is somewhat accelerated because he thinks that it will help his run for political office. So he becomes a a pretty big disappointment.
1: Yeah, he does.
0: (laughs) But then along comes Clay, the American journalist who has spent his life writing about Afghanistan and its people. And you know, they're made for each other because Satara has never really divulged to Adam her past. She has just never felt ready to share that. She's starting to feel ready to share it, but it's just never the right timing somehow for her to share that with Adam. But on their first meeting, Sitara and Clay have coffee and she tells him everything. And he understands everything because he understands Afghanistan so well. So at first, Sitara thinks his publicist at the reading where they meet is his girlfriend. Or wife, she is not thinking about him as a love interest. I personally was never fooled. I knew that that was a publicist. I know. I was. I was thinking the you same too? thing. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a sister, or there was no way they were so made for each other. There was just no way. I've read too many Hallmark movies to know <laughs> this is gonna. <laughs> the other people that I really love in this book, of course, is Antonia, who is the American diplomat who becomes her mother. And then Antonia's mom, Tilly, and Tilly is the one that you mentioned who helps Sitara originally escape the country on a very scary bus ride. It's interesting what Nadia does here, that Antonia and Tilly have a very difficult, strained, almost estranged relationship. And Tilly just happens to be visiting when all of this unravels. And I really like the fact that Tilly and Antonio have a difficult relationship. My two main reasons, if they would have had a great loving relationship, come on. I mean, that's just too saccharine. American families are perfect. The contrast would have felt too glaring that the perfect American family comes rushing in and saves the poor little. No, that would not have felt good at all. And then secondly, I liked it because Antonia didn't really know how to be a mother because Tilly, even though she and Satara really connect and have a beautiful relationship, she was not a great mom. And so Antonia doesn't really know what a good mom is. So she is reluctant to take on this mom role with Satara, but she's certainly willing to do it because she sees, well, here's a little girl in need and she wants to help her, but she doesn't always know exactly how to be a great mom. What you would say about her is that she was very culturally competent as a U.S. diplomat and she took Satara to live in diplomatic postings around the world and exposed her to a lot of cultures and really appreciated the good parts of so many other cultures too. So she was really a nice fit for Sitara in helping her grow up. But of course, like any mom, she wasn't a perfect mom. And so there's still a lot that Sitara needs to work through. Sitara was raised
1: in a home with a mother who was a diplomat who was a worldly woman that was confident in who she was as a person, as a professional that took the job of being a parent seriously and tried to give Satara every opportunity that she could tried to learn how to be a parent. I think there was a mention of her having parenting books there (laughs) on her nightstand that she tried her best to be the best parent to this little girl that she could. But the job, not only as a parent is challenging. She had a girl who had a lot of trauma that Mm -hmm. she was trying to raise too. And that brings up a lot more parenting challenges along the way, but she loved her and she did the best that
0: she could by her. Yeah. Sitara was surrounded by people who they never quite knew. Was she Greek? What, where was she from? She was not always surrounded by the most culturally competent people in the world. She had friends growing up, but she always felt a little bit different from these white American people teenagers she had friends who never really seemed all that interested in her background her her boyfriend Adam didn't really seem that interested in her background and i think that that is a very accurate portrayal of a lot of us yes. in the united states i mean we're very oh, yes. ethnocentric in terms of well the united states we we know what's happening in the united states but other countries i don't know it's just kind of a blur And that, I think, does make it easier for her to continue to suppress what's happened to her because she's just not having the opportunity to have a decent conversation with anyone else about it. Now, she certainly can with her mom, Antonia, because Antonia was there, but... She really is able to float through life without divulging much about who she really is. Well, it's not even her name. (laughs) Exactly. She takes
1: on her sister's name, and that was to smuggle her out of that country. What was her sister's name? Ariana. Ariana, which is a pretty popular name right now. Yeah. It's a name that doesn't sound like Satara. Yeah. And obviously her last name changes too, so... Yeah. It kind of shows you the, the ethno blindness that people have. Definitely. I think at 10 years old, being what she had been through, it would have been hard to relate to an average kid. Yeah. Who is 10 years old. Like you have lived your life. What would you have in common with the girl next door playing Barbies all day? Yeah, that's true. Okay, Nancy. So at the beginning of the book, So Tara says, I tucked away the family I'd lost, the childhood I'd had. How do you think she reclaims it by the end of the book, or do you think she
0: doesn't when she comes back? Nope. I don't think that she reclaims her childhood. I think she reclaims herself, but I think she recognizes that she can never reclaim her childhood, that it's gone. You mentioned that she runs into her childhood crush, Rostrum. That, for me, really illustrated that the childhood, the childhood dreams are gone and they cannot be retrieved. So when she runs into Rostrum, who is the older brother of her best friend and the grandson of the president of the country, they're now, as adults, two totally different people. In the book, she says, seeing him now... I wonder what would have become of us if it hadn't been for the coup. If we'd been allowed to grow up as children with parents and siblings in a childhood unscathed, what would our relationship have grown into? If they had been able to grow up in a childhood unscathed, I think they would have married. I think they would have had a happy life. But that and all the other dreams of her childhood are swept away. So no, I don't think that she reclaims her childhood. I think that it's a recognition that her childhood is gone and will never be reclaimed. What did you think?
1: Yeah. She said, I tucked away the family I'd lost. In some ways, I believe that she did. I think she found a resting place in her soul. I mean, she found a resting place for their what was left of their bodies. But yeah, she found a resting place in her soul where she could say they existed, they were important, they were murdered. And this is my history. This is my past. And I'm going to put it here. I'm going to close it up, a little. you know, have some positive closure, have some healing towards it. And the childhood that she had was a wonderful childhood. Yeah. She had wonderful parents. Nancy, I am not going to cry. This is so ridiculous. You're getting choked
0: (laughs) up at this.
1: Yeah. So I think she she found closure, maybe is what I would say. Yeah. When she said, I tucked my family away, that she did lose them. But yeah, that they had a resting place and she was able to heal. The healing is going to take some more time. Yeah. That that was a good healing trip for her.
0: What about this story do you think is kind of evoking this kind of emotional response for oh, you? Oh,
1: Nancy, are we really? <laughs> what? I, I'm just curious. What's Oh, it's just going to make me cry more. It's, it's sad, I guess, yeah. the journey that she's been on and how hard her life was. Yeah. It does from a psychological point of view. I thought it really did a good job in portraying what trauma does to children And how hard it is for them to be able to grow and learn and move ahead in life and to be able to heal from it. I think people think like this is, well, it happened when she was a child, you know, what could she have possibly remembered or whatever? Trauma can rearrange her brain neurons. It can really Reap damage, and it does to her for decades. I believe she does go to a counselor for a little bit.
0: Yeah, she does. (laughs) Yeah, Antonia really tries. She tries (laughs) a lot of things. Yeah,
1: but she felt that it did not do her any good. Right, that it damaged her more. And I would say that for some people, when you do open up those wounds, there can be blood. Yeah, it can be hard and maybe it was too young but a lot of times for people who have trauma that are working through it 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 is hard work to work through it I cry easily at a lot of these books that you make me read Nancy oh my goodness (laughs) No, I'm just a tearful person anyway. <laughs> I looked at this as this poor little girl really did go through this. I thought this was a true little story yeah. and um, that she had this really hard life. But thank goodness it does end up as a Hallmark kind of thing where she ends up with this great guy, much better than what she would have if she would have stayed with Adam. Yeah. Clay is much more worldly. He accepts her for who she is. What did you make of her becoming a doctor, Nance?
0: Yeah, her father wished that she would become a doctor.
1: And I think study in America to be a doctor, right?
0: Yeah, America or London, I can't quite remember. Yeah, yeah somewhere She's Western. going to go abroad. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I thought that this was a good way for her to honor her father. But I wondered if it was the best decision for her. In what way? Well, it's like when kids do things because their parents want them to do them, or have they really explored what they want, what best suits their interests and skills and talents, or are they just doing it for approval? And of course, she's never going to get approval from her father because her father's dead. But I ended up feeling ambivalent about that. She enjoyed her job. She was very good at it. Maybe her father saw this in her as a little girl. She was very, very bright as a little girl. She was reading books from the presidential library. She did have a more scientific way of thinking about the world. So it could be that her father notices this in her and says, ah, my little scientific brilliant Girl, you need to become a doctor. Yeah,
1: I kind of thought it more that way. Like this little girl was smart. And I don't think that she would have ended up with that boy because I don't think he was as smart as she was.
0: Okay. (laughs) But
1: again, he's just a little kid. Yeah. She was a little bright light. I think parents can see that in their kids. As an adult, I look at some little kids and I'm like, that one needs their ID tested. And that one over there, you know, like there are some extra bright lights in the room and you can kind of tell who those people are. And the way that she is raised by Antonio, she is given the best that this lady can give her. Yes. She teaches her multicultural things. They live at different places. And I think genetics goes a long way. Her dad was probably really smart and married a very smart lady. Yeah. And they have these very important, impressive positions in Afghanistan. And now they have this little smart girl. So I wasn't surprised that she would have a great job like that. I think she fits in very well with the clinical she wouldn't have been a therapist. She had too much things going on in herself to be able to do that. But to study under a microscope and to learn the things that needed to be learned and all of the book stuff. Yeah. There's got to be a thread of what she said there, Nance, as far as I remember my dad saying that I was going to be a doctor or that he thought I could be a doctor. And so all of those seeds that are planted as a young person Obviously, they bloom, whether they're positive or negative or trauma. And this was one thing I think that there was a seed
0: of you're made for something great and you can do it. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful, Lenny. So I mentioned I thought this book was really beautifully written. Mm. Open up the book. There's the prologue. It completely captured me. I think it's one of the most beautiful prologues I've read in a long time. So I keep a daily journal. Have I ever mentioned that to you? Yes. I didn't know it was daily. Yeah. So after I read this prologue, I spent several days just deconstructing this prologue because of how beautiful I thought it was. Do you want to read it? I'll read the first three paragraphs of the prologue because I just think she does And amazing job setting up this story. Okay. So first three paragraphs, Uh, the, uh, the beauty of the language of this, just, it kills me. Okay. Until now, my history has remained buried in me. That way, ancient civilizations are hidden beneath layers of earth and new life. But people insist on digging in the past, poking at relics of yesterday to marvel at the simplicity of extinct creatures. We display the evidence of our superiority in glass cases housed in grand buildings, sometimes half a world away from where they were found. In London, I saw the Elgin marbles lifted from the Parthenon, the Guiago shields stolen from Aboriginal Australians, and the brilliant ko diamond. In the language of my childhood, ko means mountain of light. A name that obscures the diamond's dark history. But I cannot be too critical. Not while I have my own plundered treasure in a box, far from where it was unearthed. How it came to be with me is the story that I have never fully told. Not to the woman who helped me flee a country on fire. Not to the woman who raised me as an American. And not to the man I almost loved. I mean, pretty good. (laughs) That is so beautifully poetic. And what she does there is so beautiful because she raises so many questions in the reader's mind that we want the answers to. Wait what the language of your childhood someone who raised you as an american where are you from but you've been in london what is this about the ancient history and her buried past i mean just the way all of this is woven together it does a beautiful job of telling what the story is going to be about, I thought.
1: Really interesting. I don't know from a literary point, it does give you lots of questions on what is the story going to mean? What's going on here? It raises a lot of those questions. It's funny now having read the book and going back and reading this, I didn't read it with the same love that you're you're reading it from somebody who is a writer. I was just like, huh, interesting. Okay, turn the page over. Like it did not have the same interest, but it's interesting now having seen the answers to all
0: these questions. Wow, that is really beautiful how she wrote that. And I think what it does, even if you're not consciously paying attention to that, subconsciously What you're starting to glean is, okay, we're going to some civilization that we're not familiar with. We are having a bunch of questions being asked because we're hearing her refer to things we don't know exactly what she's talking about. So I think subconsciously, the reader is really starting to settle into what is the world of this book going to be? What is this book about? And what are the struggles that we are going to face in this book, along with the protagonist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does do a great job with all of that.
1: I do like my Kindle Nance, but if you close the book, like you have to do a lot of work technology wise to get back to (laughs) That's True. Like I'm not a technology person. So, in those ways, I wish that I did have a book that I could go back and look at that. Like maybe I would have put the page down on that and then looked at it once in a while. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the ring, Nance. Satara takes the ring from the palace and she keeps it with her throughout the traumatizing days before she leaves the country. And then she keeps it with her, her whole adult life. She actually takes it when she returns to Afghanistan. To me, as I read this book, I was so glad she took the ring. I thought it helped to really ground her in her past memories and her remembering who her parents were. What did you think about the ring and the symbolism in the story?
0: Yeah, I love how it is foreshadowed in the first three paragraphs of the opening that she had a stolen treasure. So you know she has something that she's been keeping with her. And then the beginning of the book, you learn that this is a ring of an ancient civilization that was existent in the land where Afghanistan is now. I did think that the ring was a symbol of her past, her childhood. I like how you said that, that that grounded her. I kept being very afraid she was somehow going to lose the ring or or destroy it accidentally, or that someone would destroy it because she's just a little girl. She puts it in her jeans pocket. She
1: threw it, I think, once across the floor. (laughs) Right. mad. Yeah.
0: Right. And it's fairly fragile too. This is something that was made thousands of years ago, but she does decide that where it needs to be is back in Afghanistan. And I think that was symbolism of closure, that this was something that she took with her to remind herself who she is. Now she knows who she is. She doesn't need that reminder anymore. And it is a treasure that belongs in Afghanistan. It is one of the treasures from that world. Yeah, the symbolism there of her healing, taking
1: the trauma with her, that giving her grounding. And her memory and who she was and where she was from. And the keeping that then in Afghanistan and finding a safe place for it was a symbolism of her healing. Like, I can leave it in Afghanistan. I can leave Afghanistan. Yeah. And my family's been buried and I can move on.
0: Mm-hmm. The other part of the story that I keep thinking about is Shair, and he's the palace guard that helps Sitara flee from the palace. He has a very ambiguous role in this story. Sitara is convinced that Shair, who has been the recipient of her mother's good graces, of of Sitara's cast-off clothes, she's convinced that Shair is the one who murdered her family. She meets him later in the United States, years and years later. She directly asks him about it, and he equivocates. He really doesn't answer her one way or another. He does say something vague about, well, it doesn't matter because we were all complicit in some way. Right. And I think for Shair, for him, it doesn't matter whether he pulled the trigger. He was a part of the coup. So he might as well have pulled the trigger. For Satara, Shair is a monster who murdered her family. What did you think of Shair?
1: Well, he seemed like he was a nice guy before the coup. Yeah. Afterwards, he did risk his life and the life of his family for this little girl and made sure that she got to a safe place. And he took care of her while she was in the palace. So he did have some redeeming qualities. I think he murdered the family. Okay, I think that he was the one that pulled the bullet. He had to make sense of that the way he needed to make sense of that. Maybe he downplayed it by saying, I was just a soldier. I did what I was told to do. The government needed to be upthrowing and this is how we do it. Mm -hmm. And I was given the orders to do it. And if I didn't do it, maybe they would kill me. And he has to deal with his past too. I didn't like his answer at the grave of his child. I thought for his own healing process, he should have said, I did it. And I'm sorry. It was me and explained or not explained, I would have liked him to have taken ownership of it. He was a father. He knew what it was like to have children. And he knew what it was like to lose a child. So I would have liked to have seen from him his confession. And it would have been helpful for her too. She can accept it or not, but at least yes. How dare you? I
0: really thought that he did it. Did you think he did it? No, I didn't think that he did it. And for that reason, I thought the fact that at the gravesite of his son, Kareem, the fact that he didn't try to prove his innocence showed a lot of integrity. Because if he didn't pull the trigger, it would have been very easy for him to say, look, I wasn't one of the soldiers that murdered your family. I would never do that. Your mother was always so kind to me. I could never have done that. Well, he's excusing his role in a coup where he was still a part of the coup. So I thought that that showed that he was taking ownership of his role in it by not proclaiming his own innocence. It's interesting. Two different interpretations there. Mm, very interesting.
1: Well, we'll ask the author. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe she purposely left it open Mm -hmm. so that we could take it either way. Yeah. You know, whether he did it or not, it was important part of her process to healing to know what happened to them and who did it. And most people that have that are going to want to find out all the details. They're going to want to know. That's very common for people to fact find and want to know the answers and to dig out as much
0: information as they can. And maybe it was intentional on the author's part, because in this kind of political uprising, there are so many unanswered questions that you will never know the true answers to. And so maybe this is a nod to, yeah, and then you have to live with not knowing. Right. No one's ever going to come to you and confess and ask your forgiveness. Right. That does not happen. I know. <laughs> it was interesting. Satara was very captivated by the murder of the Tsar's family in Russia And what happened to those four girls? And of course, there's always been the fable that the youngest got away. And so she is very caught up in that. And actually, we don't know who pulled the trigger of that either. Yeah, we never know. There's some justices that people will not experience.
1: Yeah. Not knowing can really hinder people. And being able to move on, not having all the answers to their questions, mm-hmm. but she takes the opportunity to be able to move past that at some level and really be able to move on with her healing journey, but also with this new love interest, which we didn't spend much time talking about. Nancy, Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to dig deeper. So stop by the next time we are going to welcome Sheer John. Ahmadzai, to the front porch to talk about Afghanistan. He's the director of the Center for Afghanistan Studies at the University of Nebraska, Omaha.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in digging into a little more depth about Afghanistan. And he can illuminate for us all of the things that we did not know about Afghanistan in the 1970s because we were teenage Teenagers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Our website is
1: frontporchbookclub.com. Our episodes come out twice a month on the first and third Wednesdays of each month.
0: All right, Lenny. See you next time. Okay, Nance. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: The French (laughs) pork... (laughs) I can't. Ruh, bruh, bruh, bruh,